Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. I'm Pete Wright. Finally, Andy, finally, at the end of a long week, we get back to a little romance. Am I right? Oh, that's right. Today, we're talking about Minute 30, which begins with Schmidt telling Zola the order has been given and ends with a drive down memory lane of beatings. Joining us on the show, sadly for the last time this season, it's Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. Hello. Hi. I'm sorry to be wrapping up the week, but it's been a pleasure. Well, I mean, you could crash any time, man. Oh, okay. Anytime you want. Well, I'm back next time. It's then. fine. It's <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Then I will excellent. be here next time. Then Masterpiece. The, the order has been given. <laughs> yes, we come in. Uh, this is the answer after we, in our last minute, we had uh, Zola ask if he should give the order and find out that it has been given. There already is a plan in place per Schmidt to track down Erskine. And I have to think that, yeah, maybe that'll come in play sometime in the future. What do you think? Hmm. See, that also adds that whole thing we we're talking last time, which is that like maybe there was a bit of Zola thinking he actually was a part of this process, but clearly he's not. <laughs> you know, so again, yeah. there's there's he's not included in this kind of decision making and he kind of sloughs it off, but clearly he thought, you know, that he was gonna be the one. Yeah, I think he I think he plays it off well when he says good. Yeah, you know, I, exactly. you know, but yeah, I, I you look at Toby Jones' face; he's like, you know, he's a little hurt, mm-hmm. a little hurt. His ego got bruised a little bit just now. Oh, Toby! <laughs> Toby's I so will have to but become I love a supercomputer. Every everything about his 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 brief sequence that we get in this minute is is really perfect because first he's he is obviously bruised, but when he comes back and the light turns on. The way he holds his body, the way you have the light cascading over his face, but not in his eyes and under his nose, the dark shadows there sort of allude to the change that he, you know, we might be able to see uh, in some potential future Zola, uh, the the way he sort of loses definition in uh, contrast. And I think that's uh, I, I think it's really cool. That's brilliant. I never thought of that. That's that's a beautiful observation. Yeah. Well, it's a lovely image, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it, it's just a, a lovely way to showcase him physically. No, it works. It works really well. And it, and it plays well with the, the what's going on in the scene, too, with this this tension between these two characters and the dramatic music. This is that the, the great a moment that you have of that second opera piece where you can hear the way that those those beats are hitting like those those horns are hitting emphasizing all of the stuff going on with this moment it works really well as uh <laughs> you get this moment where uh schmidt turns the lights back on and and i i can't help but wonder if this is a little bit more of like a test after this whole thing where he turns the lights back on for zola and says what do you think just like he's wanting to see um, what Zola is going to say at this point. How did you two read this scene, this part of the moment here? Well, I love the, the um, you talked about him in the last minute. Um, and I've already forgotten his name. The painter, the, the portrait artist. Dave, David McHale. Yeah, McHale. Yeah, it's amazing to not even get a line. And his face is everything in this, this one scene. Another great example of... Uh, no small parts and how important it is. It's like that look of relief tells us everything that his life is in danger. 
And like, you know, you can spit it out. Like, I'm sure Schmidt has his family somewhere. And it's like, there's there's <laughs> all sorts of horror and fear there. And it's like, it all res- it all rests on Zola to let this man live. And he does. And the relief is extraordinary. And it's so beautifully done with not a word spoken. That everyman face on David McHale, I have seen really nothing intentionally of his and yet he's been in so much and his face looks so so familiar to me um uh, it it's it's uncanny i feel like who am i looking at like he is somebody i've seen before well he seems like the sort of person who would, who would be the fourth geographer in a movie or or fifth fourth, <laughs> fourth or, fifth. or fifth yeah whatever but like he does have a great face and he, but he works well and he plays it so well uh you know to what you were saying Arnold like it, there's no dialogue he just has to give a look and yeah. the way that he reacts to Toby Jones comment and the way Toby Jones actually makes the decision to kind of just say that you know I, I don't know all of it plays really well in the scope of the end of this kind of tense interaction between the characters i i really um, enjoy the way that this as, as much as I struggle with the way that it starts trying to figure out like what is going on between these guys is he never seen him with his red with the, his human face off you know why are they acting this way but the way that it builds to this final moment I think is uh, quite quite good mm-hmm. well and what is he what is he asking him to react to specifically is he asking him to act to the quality uh, to, to react to the quality of the the uh, you know artisanship of the of the painting or is he turning on the light so that he can reveal himself more fully in bright light against the window? Like, is he that that is always a the sort of uh, double intention of this scene that I think is is really interesting. And I, I don't know, is he saying masterpiece to the painting or to Red Skull in his full glory? That's also a beautiful point, And it works well both ways. And, and again, it underscores the power play between the two of them. And it goes back to what we were already talking about from before about like, well, surely he's seen him. It's like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe he has, but also maybe he keeps himself under wraps and maybe he likes to only be seen on his own terms. So it's like he walked in and it's like, do you mind? I'm having a portrait of thing. But then once he's got control of the situation, he can turn the light on and go, now I let you see because it's my choice to let you see. And, And that makes a lot of sense. I would love to have seen this painting just like at some point in somewhere else in the MCU, like somebody had it, they (laughs) they got it from this base and they had it hanging up. That would have been a great little moment to have. That would be awesome. And why isn't it? Or like maybe like in Vormir or wherever, where the skull is now just a ghost, like just tacked on (laughs) somewhere. He still has the portrait (laughs) hanging up. (laughs) He brought it with him. Oh, that would have been great. That would have been great. It's it's a great little moment. I, I, I enjoy uh, this. But yeah, I would love to see the painting at some point. It would be fun to see. Um, I don't know if we have anything else. Uh, any last things here in the Alps before we take off? I don't think so. Let's go back to New York. So we are leaving the Alps and we're ending up in Brooklyn. Back in Brooklyn, um, we, we get a great little moment here. Uh, just kind of setting the stage for where we are. I mean, if there's anything that that says America, it's young boys playing stickball in the streets, I suppose, huh? Yeah, yeah. Total. Like, cliches, but they work, you know? 
it's fun to see. Uh, you know, this is, it's frustrating. There are so many people in this movie who just don't have um, even like credited as as background characters. There's just one person who's credited as a New York child, Esme Allen Cornby. I don't know if this is a person who's playing stickball. I don't know if it's another New York child that shows up somewhere else. Hard to say. Unfortunately, it's just left unclear. Could it be the one who's threatened by the Hydra agent? Um, I believe that child is actually um, more specifically named okay. or, or credited as like kid. And, you know, I can't remember what he says, but I, I think that kid is Nazi guy. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, there are also a couple kids credited like kid in USO audience and things like that. But um, the only one I could find in relation to kind of like New York is just the one that says New York. Uh, or New York child, so New York child. I would love to go out as New York child. Wonder how many people show up for that audition. You're just <laughs> not New York enough for this role, <laughs> sir. You're 49 years old. <laughs> I love Captain America. I'm I love sorry. In this movie, I brought my own mitt and everything, sir. <laughs> That's the end of a long week, everybody. That's right. That's right. <laughs> We are uh, we are coming in at a um, a section of this film. Uh, you know, we are filming a lot of this in uh, in and around the London area because they did film all of this over in the UK, and uh, it looks like this street where we're on Dale Street where they're actually filming this, and then of course they digitally added the Brooklyn Bridge in the back just to uh, emphasize once more that this is, in fact, uh, Brooklyn. Wait a minute. This, this wasn't 40s Brooklyn for real? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a movie is this? The magic of movie making. fakers. <laughs> I, I, well, I would love to have thought that they could have shot some in New York, but obviously it didn't make yeah. sense with uh, with the whole thing taking place or with the whole the rest of the film being filmed over in the, in the London area. So. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see a car driving down the street here, uh, along with a lot of street signs. Uh, before we jump into the car, I just wanted to rattle through some of the street signs because it feels very generic, which is fine and period. Hardware, paint, varnishes and oils. We see something like Cohen and I'm guessing Sons, maybe Men in Boys Pants. There's a shipping trade. There's a photo studio right by the alley that Steve's going to point to. It says Gunsmith. Uh, so we see very generic signs. Um, does this feel like uh, something that would be authentic to you uh, both, or does this feel like a little too, a little too fakey, fakey? Well, I mean, I was certainly wasn't watching it like freeze framing it. You know what I mean? Like it moves pretty fast. Um, it definitely felt of the period to me. I didn't really question any of the any of the drive. Uh, not even a little bit, mostly because uh, my heartstrings were so taut at the moment <laughs> over what small Steve was saying. See, that's the point, too. When they're setting up the shot, they're thinking, you sure that these signs are going to convince people that this is Brooklyn in the 40s? And you don't understand. They don't matter because everybody is going to be focusing on the incredible moving piece happening in the car. And they're going to be distracted from the signs. And that is Johnston's genius as a director. He understands that. Yeah. Well, and it's smart. Leaving them generic <laughs> is smart, honestly, because you uh, don't yeah. want it to be so specific. But yeah, I, it's, it is funny. I know we're all just being a little cheeky here. But yeah, it is one of these things. You see these signs in the background. Really, the focus, let's just, let's just get on with it. 
It's the car. We hop into the car, and of course, now we see uh, it's Steve and Peggy and an uncredited driver. I'll just say that he is here. We just He's completely not a part of the scene, although you do get a great three-shot of him sitting in the driver's seat as he's driving. It's really a conversation. It's Peggy and baby Steve, who, who kind of looks like he's sitting in another car very far away, almost like the forced perspective shots from Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> Except he's not. This this is one of the scenes that I was alluding to earlier and saying this is one of the ones where I feel like the CGI on him doesn't work too well. It's like they they went so far with the with the shrinking of him that again and and how much have we already talked in just a few episodes about how it's a comic book movie, right? But there are certain things I feel where you can go with it and certain things where you can't. Certain things where the reality needs to work for the rest of it to be silly. I I would like to think that I could look at him and feel like that's a real human being. But I feel that very often the stuff they did to him in this part of the movie was a little too much. And in only a couple moments does it really work. And the the earlier minutes we've done this week, I think it works. And this, it's in daylight and he really doesn't look like he's even sitting there, though he probably was. And they you know did the stuff after and the proportions are weird. It's just really weird. But eh, whatever. So. <laughs> is it is it because you get a little bit of that uh, Gandalf Frodo in a buggy feeling? Yes, exactly. At all? <laughs> is that kind of what you get? I still think all the time about that behind the scenes thing where they said, "Look how he's not even sitting in the same place," and I'm yeah, thinking, that's what Steve looks like, even though I know it's not. It's like they don't. Yeah, it feels like they didn't tell him quite the right eye line. Yeah, they, they, exactly. They didn't quite. His, his eyes yeah. aren't quite pointed in the right place. It's a tough one. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about about two people sitting side by side and then doing all that. It's just you know. So it doesn't. I don't feel it works a hundred percent. But also, again, I don't care. I mean, it's not going to make me turn off the movie. I just, I just don't think it's as convincing as it is in other spots. I think it works better when Steve is in the foreground and the camera is like focusing on him and Peggy is kind of the one who's kind of a little farther from camera. Like that works better for me. Yeah. As opposed to when we do kind of the the reverse angle and we're kind of over Peggy's shoulder looking back at Steve. And that's where I, I, I look at Steve and I'm like, is he smaller than he normally is? Yeah. Like it, it just always ends up feeling like, yeah, almost like um, – I don't know what ends up coming into my head, which is a completely, you know, <laughs> nonsensical uh, thing to pick up. Um, but it's um, the secret life of Walter Mitty when you have the baby. The, the they do this whole spoof on Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and um, Kristen Wiig is like taking care of of Ben Stiller, who is like this little baby man. And when I see Steve in this particular moment, I. I always go to the baby man moment because he just, he looks like not right. He looks like he's, yeah. they're trying to do a baby man thing here. Yeah. But otherwise it works. If, if it was just all from the other side, it would be okay. Yeah. And well, again, that's, re that's really true. In isolation, it's actually, it's wizardry. Like in isolation, it's perfect. And it's, it's the integration where that suffers a little bit. Yeah. Well, but I, but I think it's specifically the integration when he's in the distance from her. Like, yeah. again, when he's foreground and she's background, the sizing weirdly looks fine, even though I'm guessing it's probably comparable. It just is when he's past her, he looks extra small. 
I just, I really struggle. I'm just gonna it's like he's full, he goes full he, Frodo. He's full baby man. No, he's 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 shrinking in her presence yeah. because she's so intimidating to him. He's, he, yeah, he's gone full baby man here. <laughs> Which maybe maybe makes sense. Maybe makes sense. Maybe they said, you know what? Let's make him the extra baby man here because he's going to be talking about how much he gets beat up all the time. <laughs> please, please let there exist an interview where Joe Johnston uses the words full baby man. <laughs> Uh, do you guys buy the dialogue here? He he says, I was beaten up, I was beaten up, I was beaten up. Look at all the places I was beaten up. I'm also objectively a small guy, and I tend to open my mouth in ways that kind of angers other people. And then she says, yeah, I know a little something about that. Well, she first says, did you have something against running away? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I guess it's... Does it she, is a, what it's, possibly does she have to relate to little Steve? <laughs> well, okay, this... Uh, Arnold, you're coming in on this this conversation that that Pete has been having a uh, fiery conversation uh, from the beginning <laughs> okay. about his position of Peggy as a member of kind of the team looking for the perfect recruit for this experiment. And and Pete's position is that she is looking at him as the perfect recruit, not romantically Um and, and I feel like that's going to fall away at some point. I think Pete's going to have to give up on this. But at this point, I think this is a great uh, a great moment to come in because this is a big conversation that we are going to talk about today and then next week. Um, where what what, is, what do you feel about uh, like Peggy as far as the way that she is seeing Steve at this point? Well, for one thing, I will say at the outset. I know a lot of people are emotionally invested in this relationship. And of course, the movie wants you to be emotionally invested in this relationship. I never feel there's any chemistry between the two of them at all. None. <laughs> none. Oh, yeah. Now, did you, were you on Were you on team Thor and uh, Jane last uh, with the last season? I can't remember if you liked that relationship. I think we may have talked about that. No, because they also have zero chemistry. Okay, Actually, I was, was going to say, I feel like you're the zero chemistry guy. <laughs> yeah, they're like a of no chemistry. <laughs> Black hole of chemistry other people's chemistry gets sucked in that's why they had to bring his own wife in to do the kiss scene what was it in the uh and post credits on dark world because it's like you know there's nothing happening there so let's just shoot her from behind with a wig on so that you'll care about another human being that you're going to kiss but i don't i don't see any chemistry between the two i think Haley atwell's great I think she's been great in all the stuff that she's done, but I don't think they, I don't buy the romance. I just don't think those two actors sparked. So I don't, I don't feel it really. And obviously there's a turning point at some point where you're supposed to feel like, oh, she's starting to realize this is a man. Actually, there's also some problems here. I mean, and to a certain extent, uh, not one of us are really qualified to speak about it. So I feel uncomfortable. Well, we'll try, but we'll try anyway. Right. (laughs) Because we're white guys, so we're going to do that. Um, but obviously, her character is meant to represent, you know, an empowered woman at a time where, both while that didn't necessarily happen all the time, she definitely has the rank and position she has. But clearly, that's her point. As I know a little something about this, is she knows what it's like to be a woman in a man's world, trying to be a commanding figure. They play that beat a few times in the movie, but. It's also something to be trying to make that kind of character in a movie directed by a man, you know, a lot of men behind the scenes. You're not really getting an honest look at that kind of thing. Um, And of course, we're doing better now, arguably, with some some later stuff than we're then. But I also think that it's a bit uncomfortable that 
the first time you really get a sense that they're veering into the romance is when he comes out of the machine and he's all muscled. Yeah. And she looks at him and I'm thinking that is a really regressive old school kind of thing. Like, well, now I'm attracted to him because he's a big boy now. And it's like, I don't know that a woman would write that or that or direct it or or that that's the way it would be. And I just think ultimately the relationship does what it needs to do for the movie. But I don't really believe in it. I don't think that it's, you know, very convincing. And again, it doesn't matter that much for the adventure part of the story. But I, I just don't think those two really work. Do you ever think those two work? I mean, they have kind of a history no, now. No, I mean, Never. like I, I feel like even at the end when he's gone, like the way it all wound up, I, I don't like that whole ending. The dance. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, I mean, for me, and again, to go out of our time frame here, but I mean, for me, You'll never be able to convince me that a man like him could have sat through all that history again, knowing what he knows, that Hydra's running everything, and not do something about it. It's it's insane. Yeah. And I just don't buy that whole thing. So so right from the start of it, these are two characters that don't seem to me to be a romantic couple. And I think they do the best they can as actors with the story they're supposed to be telling. Um, but. Yeah, I, that's the weakest part of it for me, I guess. Is that a Marvel problem? Do you find any couples work well in Marvel? Or do you feel like that's, is there a Joe Johnston element there? I, I, I mean, he hasn't had a lot of romance in his films. Um, or is it just kind of just uh, kind of an intrinsic, you know, thing that just keeps happening because of the kind of the way that these stories get constructed? That's an interesting point. I'm trying to think of where it, well... Because at this point, I mean, it, we've had, uh, you know, Pepper and we've had Betty and. Uh, I always felt that Tony and Pepper seemed to actually be a couple that that were like those two seemed to really be sparking off one another. When Natalie watched it with me, she pointed out that the problem with that one is it's hugely toxic because he's her boss. And and even though he hands the company to her, that's a really <laughs> really uncomfortable relationship especially that yeah. first time when he likes going to dance with her and everything but i mean as actors in chemistry i think the yeah. two of them seem like i believe it that the two of them are together I'm, I'm trying to think of anyone else um i don't know what other what other couples have we had yeah i mean well we're gonna yeah it'll be a while before we get new couples it was the next new couple is Ant-Man, is that right? I was just going to say Ant-Man. Yeah. Ant-Man, I, I, I don't buy that one either. <laughs> you don't, you're not into okay. I never thought of this before. Maybe they have a couple's problem. I don't know. They have a couple's problem. Well, in this scene in particular, I struggle with the fact that they're trying to relate, where she's saying that I know a little something about that, and obviously we don't, in this context, have the benefit of the rest of the conversation, but I know a little something about that, and then what that is, is somehow relates her experience as being an, a woman in the military to being a small man who gets beaten up in alleys. And I just don't I, I just don't necessarily buy that that connection. It, it ultimately ends up infantilizing him a little bit and doesn't necessarily make her case any stronger or more empowered. No, and, and arguably it, it, it really minimizes 
her experience completely too, but you're comparing yes. a guy who's gotten beaten up in an alley to a woman who's experienced systemic discrimination. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, 100%. This, yeah, it doesn't, it does. But you know, the thing is though, we, we can say that and, and yet, I don't disbelieve like you have two people to have this kind of conversation. Maybe she's trying to reach out to him. Maybe she's trying to say, you know, well, I understand, you know, we have problems and, you know, it doesn't have to be exact one to one. She's trying to connect with him a little bit. She's got, and also it's, again, it's also victim to these standard romance, uh, couple kind of cliches and movies. She's being kind of cold. She doesn't really want to connect with him emotionally because he's the test subject. You know, but she's still trying to be not nice. until he has giant packs until until yeah. <laughs> now he's the muscle guy. It's like, whoa. Yeah. You know, well, all everything I hear what you're doing there. You're backpedaling a little bit. And uh, but and that doesn't work in service of my position that they are not romantic at this point uh, in the face, just smashing it in Andy's face because he's definitely on team couple. I'm not on team couple. I, I just I like to provoke you because I, I think it's funny that you took that stance so hard out of the gate that like yeah. it's just all about the now it's all like yeah. Yeah. And you're you're going to be that they guy. could be making out in the back of the in the back of that car. And I would I would still say there there's it's not there's nothing of substance there. Ten years down the road, they have children in a house and you say, don't buy it. Don't <laughs> no, buy it. She, she's just on she's on the edge of leaving him at any moment is all I'm saying. Give it six months. You can't you can't marry. A, don't marry your heroes. Isn't that something they say? Well, they, to sure your they point, though, that. like if he had come out of the test and he had he had been incredibly, incredibly strong, but was in the exact same body that he went in with. I wonder if she would have ever grown romantically interested in him. Well, clearly not because Peggy likes her beefcake is the whole idea. Yeah, it's that's all about what, those packs. She needs yeah. a himbo. Just kind of touch it. That's what the movie's all about, ultimately. Yep. Yep, yep. It is a weird way for him to kind of, I, and I know we're going to, we're not going to find out about in this minute, but he does know how to talk to girls. Well, we kind of already got some of that with him and Bucky earlier, how he's like, I don't know what to do with these girls. These, you know, I tried giving Bonnie peanuts and she clearly didn't want any peanuts. I don't know what to do. Well, we know the real reason why he's having that problem. If he and Bucky would just admit to themselves, you know, <laughs> that's, this is the love affair that will last lifetimes. So. That's right. This is the. This is the one that is as unrequited, alas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but alas. it is. It is like it is so strange though that that like his lead into the conversation is like uh, about how abused he was, like how he's just always getting beaten up, and it's like, is that something that you are are gonna say? I don't know. It just feels like one of those things that's just like maybe just can't keep that to yourself. It's just I don't know. This whole conversation ends up starting in a way where I kind of struggle with it because of that, and I get her reaction is like. It does feel like kind of the scientist trying to probe a little bit. Like, did you have something against running away? Like trying to kind of get at it a little bit. Here's the thing that I do like about it, though, is that everything you're saying right now is just yet another wonderful indication that this Steve does not even know that there would be possibly potential for a relationship. And he keeps saying, yeah, here's all the places I used to get beaten <laughs> up. Like he just can't fathom that there is somebody who's trying to to invest in the relationship with him to the point that it, there's a curiosity of romance uh, and he can't see it. And I think it's just uh, I, I do like his portrayal uh, of that. And it just, again, 
cements my point. And it also is designed very much like everything we've had with Steve since we first met him at the recruitment center to be something giving us a sense of who he is on the inside. Because he has these quippy lines, like you start running, they'll never let you stop. You stand up, push back, can't say no forever, right? Like that moment that he has here, this is yet another thing for him to say, to say, this is who Captain America is. This is the guy that I am. All of these things that have happened from that first time to this, it's all kind of setting up this character. And with moments like this, I mean, it's here very specifically to give Peggy something to kind of, you know, potentially fall in love with. It's not just about the science. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, you you and me, we're so alike, you know, and as she says, yeah, so. Yeah, right. It's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting scene. I, I like the car scene. It's not my favorite of the scenes in the film. Um, but, it, you know, I can see that clearly it needs to be here to, you know, get these two characters closer and closer together uh, for us as a potential item. Um, well, uh, Arnold, one of the things we like asking our guests uh, over the course of the week is what for you? would be a favorite Captain America moment uh, from the comics or from the films. Um, do you have something that stands out as kind of the pinnacle Captain America? Well, I've been thinking about it and it was, and I still haven't really quite zeroed in. I was trying to think more about the comics because I figured, well, I certainly have a lot more history with the comics, but I do feel that one of the things that uh, defines these movies as something that I love so much, and obviously a lot of us do, that we always come back to, is how well the casting was done in so many cases. And I think that Chris Evans is one of those people who is like, you once you see it, you can't imagine anyone else being this character. So ultimately, I feel like I really need to pick something of Chris Evans. And for me, I guess I'll I'll go with, more in general, I think his performance in the Avengers is one of the like bits of glue that holds that whole thing together and makes it work so well is that you have him really feeling like a man at a time meeting all these other people and finding a way to unite everything. And even though it may be cliched and very obvious and overused, I think I p I'll pick as my moment from that, the, I get that reference moment where they're sitting around the table because it's, it's human, it's heartwarming, it's childlike. Like he's he's like a little kid in this other time and he hasn't quite figured out his place yet. And there's something very endearing about his character once he's moved into the present and is struggling with it. And I remember reading a lot of the comics from the 60s when they brought him back, you know, in the Avengers first and were playing a lot of these beats with a much different time scale because obviously it was a lot more recently World War II had happened. But Stan and the others at Marvel would tend to play Cap's out of time is very melancholy. And what I like in the movies is partly because they don't have time in the movies to deal with that. But I, I like the fact that they kind of moved past melancholy pretty quickly and just made it. This is a man who's determined to make sense of this time and be a part of it, but he's still not quite meshing. And that moment is a good one. Actually, if I pick a second, it would be like the, him writing the things down at the beginning of winter soldier with Sam. It's it's those little humanizing moments that tell you that in here is still that little, it's still that fallen baby man from the fourth. He's <laughs> <laughs> still trying to figure things out. So that that's the parts I like, the very human parts of Chris Evans' performance. Human and and also sort of not human, <laughs> not human at all. 
because he's a CGI baby. He's a full baby, man. <laughs> they went full baby. <laughs> well, I mean, despite the humor, those were actually really great moments. And I like that you focused on such human elements of the character, because I think that's something that I, I latch onto with him as a character, is that uh, he does have that sense of trying to be the best um, version of himself that he can be. I really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think anybody's picked I get that reference yet, which is so good. I didn't even think about it, but it's so easy to pick the huge moments of Cap, right? The I could do this all day, the, you know, the on your left, the uh, those those kinds of of giant hero moments that that we get and uh, or catching the, you know, catching Thor's hammer and in uh, at the end. It's just all of those things are are so big. And I, I like this because it's a gem of a small moment that says so much. And and that's one of the things that makes this character, I think, so appealing. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. Well, Arnold, remind everyone one last time where they can learn more about you and what you're up to. You can hear me and my wife, Natalie, talk about all kinds of horror movies, sci-fi and beyond on our podcast, Ghouls in the House, which you can find at ghoulsinthehouse.com or on your favorite podcast app. And you can also check out my publishing company where we publish books on all the pop culture universes that you love at atbpublishing.com. And thanks for reminding me in a previous one. I'm also doing a comic strip twice a week called Pickles and Bean, which you can find at picklesandbean.com. We'll check all those out. And everybody, you're going to have to now track down the Chupacabra at the Alamo episode. That, uh, <laughs> Eric Estrada is in that movie. No. Of course oh he is. Goodness. Of course Eric Estrada is. It is. It is uh, you want to talk bad CGI. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> uh, it, what, is that what it's called, Chupacabra at the Alamo? It is, it is in fact, a 2013 movie, um, Chupacabra versus the Alamo. Wow. Yes. Chupacabra versus the Alamo and uh, Eric Estrada. And, you know, the thing is, the more I think about it, the more I think I don't think we ever actually specifically talked about it on our show. But it was one of those early movies that the two of us watched together that really made us realize how much we both really enjoy watching the terrible things and having fun. With <laughs> and, uh, and that was one of them. That Well, now you're going to have to do that episode. I know. Yeah. Now, if we uh, haven't done it yet. We're going to have to. Oh my God, so funny. That's too so good. So funny. Somebody well has to talk about that movie. Please. Might as well be you. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> All right. I'll take the shot. Yep. There you go. Arnold, thanks so much for joining us all week. It has been a pleasure. I love doing these with you, and I'm always happy to do more. So thanks very much. We appreciate it. We'll have you back for next season for sure. Uh, and that's it for the week, everybody. Remember, you can join our Discord community. Uh, just go to marvelmovieminute.com and you can click on the Discord link and you can uh, join it and jump into the conversation with all of us over there. And uh, we'd love to have you. So, Pete, thanks again, as always. What would happen if you put the super soldier serum in an evil chupacabra? <laughs> I'm just going to leave you with that. Would it turn red? <laughs> shirt shirt I'm not on a shirt. <laughs> until next time true believers Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM engineering by Andy Nelson 
This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.